Welcome to Ep 154. Now, today's guest is me. <laughs> and this was a conversation I had with Karen Martell on her show called The Other Side of Weight Loss. If you're someone that struggles to commit to changes in your life that you know you need to, particularly in the area of health, nutrition, and wellness, this episode is going to be worth diving into because Karen asked me a lot and we discussed the psychology of weight loss, identifying and navigating self-sabotage, and how to cultivate behavior change within yourself whilst battling that relentless pull that you feel dragging you back to your old habits. This is the part of weight loss and getting better that most people just ignore or put in the too hard basket. But for most of us, without this piece, we're just going to end up back at square one after every diet we ever try. This is a big one. So, let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. We all want the quick fix when it comes to weight loss, the magic bullet, the diet to end all diets, the weight loss pill. But we know that there's no such thing. Even though we choose to ignore that fact and continue getting sucked into the glamour of new fad diets. One of the main reasons these diets tend to fail over and over and over again is because you haven't dealt with the psychology of your eating behavior. Behavioral psychology aims to understand why we behave the way we do and analyze patterns in our actions and behaviors. Using it to aid weight loss means understanding the many factors that influence weight gain. While our dieting industry might have us still believe that weight loss is all about math and our food industry seems happy to support this belief, it's simply not the truth. Weight loss is not all about math. It's intrinsically connected to our psychology, our emotions, beliefs, and our happy hormones. My guest today is my friend, Maddie Lansdowne, an expert on how our health is intrinsically connected to our psychology. Maddie is a scientist, nutritionist, and health coach that specializes in weight loss and self-confidence for women and busy mothers. Starting out in the field of nutritional epigenetics and spending several, several years working in hospitals as part of a disease research team, Maddie believes that most disease and illness is not due to bad luck, but as a result of poor nutrition and lifestyle choices. His extensive experience allowed him to uncover the deeper challenge people have with health, which isn't about calories or kale, but in fact, mindset and behavior change. Having been on his own personal development journey, Maddie is now super passionate about showing people how to level up their health so that healthy habits and the best food choices are easy and natural. So, my friend, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> hey, thank you. What, a, what an amazing introduction. <laughs> yes, you got a good little bio in there. It's, <laughs> I love your background. It's crazy how much you've done, and you're only 32 years old, I just found out. So, <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm, I'm a youngin' in the space. <laughs> so, but you're a bit of a, a little bit of a brainiac, aren't you? I'm a bit of a nerd. It's a thing. Yes. It's definitely a thing. I don't know how you it don't happened. come across like that. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Like every report card that I ever got through school was, has potential, but is too distracted. <laughs> <laughs> He's always talking to everybody, <laughs> which is probably probably relevant to the start of this podcast because we just talked for basically the first hour before we hit record. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're smarty pants, I can tell. So you're probably, yeah, I know that you're good at what you do because of your background in science and you are super passionate about getting to the bottom of these things and helping these busy mothers, which I think is a very necessary thing because I'm a busy mother and <laughs> I know what that's all about. <laughs> and I, you know, I hear all the time. I just had it on my, on my, in my group membership the other day, a woman posted, I know what to eat. So why don't I? And I hear Mm -hmm. this all the time and everybody's like, but they, it frustrates the heck out of them because they hear from us, you know, what they should be doing, what they should be eating, how they should be exercising. 
And yet they can't, it's like their brain just goes down a different pathway. So I really want us to dive into this because I know that you're the expert on this and which is why I'm just super excited to have you on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited to be here. I learned so much from you and your podcast. So thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, I was just telling you, I was learning quite a bit from yours as well. (laughs) So tell us, let's, let's just jump right in. Let's do it. How does the emotional and the mental health, how is it the same as your physical health? How are they not separated? Good question. So I think with many of the things in the nutrition, the health world, the wellness world, is the reality is we live in a capitalist society and that lends itself towards the fact that everything is about marketing, um, which you know we were talking about a little bit earlier too. And it's like communicating these messages. And whenever, you know, as a business owner, you go to these trainings and it's about the big grandiose promise that you can guarantee somebody. And there's no part of a capitalist society that is devoid of that. And so we've gone through, most people have gone through their whole lives hearing these things about different types of food, whether it be as children now that currently are exposed to sugar ads, you know, in between the cartoons that are promising these fun experiences. Um, And then, you know, you can also grow same with teenagers and then same as adults, all of this food advertising that's promising this, you know, end of the spectrum, sometimes extreme outcome. Uh, And so we've had this information put into us for a very, very long time. And it's very rare that obviously that is the experience for people. Not only that is that it's it's also like physiological as well as psychological. And we've also been in this sort of, in the era of science for the last 100 to 150 years, it's been all about the physical and we kind we kind of ignore or neglect anything beyond something we can touch when it, like with our emotions and so there's been a real separation i think an active separation in between the mind and the body as if the body is just here and the mind is somewhere out there but the mind and the body are one thing the body is the mind and the mind is the body um, and so when it comes to making decisions about food and we know yeah, there's so many people that know what to do. Like I've done a lot of public speaking in lots of countries and I've never spoken to an audience that did not know that meat and vegetables were probably a good idea. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and it's like, we, we all know by this point, whether it be from our mum when we were younger telling us to eat our broccoli sprouts or whether it be from our health friends, or there's just very few people that don't know. And so when I went on my own journey, I sort of started very much in the, the books, you know, the, it's like people need to eat this. Um, and working in a cancer hospital for so long, walking through the clinic every single day, I saw everybody was obese. Like, and I, I did a lap of the hospital at one point, uh, once I'd sort of really understood that, you know, obesity was a precursor to cancer and all sorts of disease. And I did a full lap of the hospital, took me about two and a half hours and I collected data on my phone of every patient that visibly looked overweight. And it was about 86% of people in beds looked overweight. Um, and so at this point, I was like, okay, food, food is the problem there. And then I got to the food step and I started telling everybody what to eat and not a great deal changed. No. And, and, and it could be for lots of reasons. But at that point, I realized that people knew what to do, but were not changing their decisions. And so then I had to go to the next layer, which is, okay, why are people making choices that don't help them? Why are people doing things that are not in their favor? And and this is where the physiological comes into it too, because after a lifetime of consuming sugar, which is a psychoactive substance, can be up to eight times more addictive than cocaine. Um, you, You know, you're being controlled by an external force. But then we also get into the sort of psychological and emotional, which is, uh, that we haven't been taught. We were often raised by parents that didn't have uh, emotional, they weren't emotionally together or mature themselves. So we didn't learn how to deal with any uncomfortable, painful emotions. And because sugar has been around for, you know, 50 to 100 years and it's gone up in consumption, we, because it's psychoactive, we want to change our psych- psychological state, right? So when we have an emotion, we want to, we want to put in a psychoactive substance to change that state. <clears throat> And so, therefore, we can go to sugar, we go to these hyperpalatable bliss point foods, which also degrade our arteries and destroy our brain because they're you know, really full of vegetable oil as well. And so, 
we, we're in this space where we're, we're managing our emotions and our psychology by going down a path to change our emotional state, despite knowing that meat and vegetables feels good. But our nervous system is so conditioned for one particular type of experience. I often talk to my clients like this. So the old you, the old you that is like familiar with managing their emotions or responding to situations or managing stress by eating sugar, by swinging on the pantry door or the fridge, it's like a perfectly paved five-lane highway when you go down that path neurologically. So the neurons in your brain, it's like amazing. You couldn't even trip over if you tried. Like it's just perfect. But then on the other side, which is the meat, vegetables, meditation, breath work, emotional management skills, you know, digging into past trauma, decoding marketing and advertising for 40 years. That's like going across a river on a tightrope. And so neurologically, if you step in that direction, it feels strange to the body because the nervous system is not used to doing things this way. And so, of course, we're like, oh, I want to go back to the perfectly paved highway. It felt safe and comfortable. So that's one of the, I think, big things is that, yeah, people know what to do, but a tightrope over a river is like, who wants to do that? Let's just go to the, the highway, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, that's such a great way to explain it because people blame themselves. They don't think... Mm. That there's something going on in their brain, except mm-hmm. a lack of willpower. So they're yes. like, oh, I'm such a terrible person. I've got no willpower. I can't do this. And mm-hmm. I, I, I always would say like, you know, when the pathway that you're used to going down, same thing, great big highway, easy to cruise down. And then the other one is this little tiny, tiny little <laughs> pathway like this big that you're trying totally. to squeeze yourself through. And it's so much harder. And it's like, yeah, too challenging. Let's just go down the path of least resistance, which is absolutely the sugar. <laughs> like, who wants yep. to look at this stuff over here? <laughs> totally. And and it, even if um even if people don't you know aren't necessarily sweet tooths with sugar, it can still be using any type of food to eat too many times a day, too frequently, too often. Um, you know, it's about masking an experience that you're having. Um, And the other thing is too, a lot of people go to therapy to find out what's this trauma that I'm trying to eat myself out of um, and find that there's nothing there. Like marketing and advertising has been pumped into our brains our whole lives, every single where we go. And now we have social media. So we're seeing more ads than ever. And you can actually just be coded to think one day, one way, programmed in your brain to think one way. That's what marketing's meant to do. Yes, exactly. My (laughs) sister always says that she's a major sugar addict. Like for the most part, she's this extremely healthy eater. Like, so Mm -hmm. she'll eat, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, this very clean, clean paleo based food. But then she sits down and she'll like pound back an entire cake or a bucket of ice cream and can't stop herself. And she's always been like that since she was little. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, oh, it must be some sort of like trauma or emotional stuff. And she's like, no, she's like, I have gone through all of that. She's like, (laughs) it is sheer boredom. She's like, that's it. She's like, I don't have stuff to uncover. She's like, I've done all that. She's Mm -hmm. like, it's just boredom. And I think too, so much of it is also like wired in us for survival, isn't it? Like to go to those hyperpalatable foods. Absolutely. Especially given that like the modern world is so insanely stressful for how from how we existed hundred years ago, two hundred years ago. And then of course if you go all the way back to when we were just in tribes and the only time where we had a stress response is if, you know, we were being chased by a lion. Um and so yeah, when we're in these stress states, we want fast energy because we need to respond to the stress. However, the brain doesn't know the difference between, you know, being chased by a lion versus getting a bad email from a, 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 a you know, a boss or a, having a fight with a partner. The, the, the brain, we can consciously compartmentalize it, but we cannot hormonally compartmentalize it. And so the, the stress just happens to the body. And because most people are sitting in their desk chair or sitting on the couch during a stress response, all of this, you know, energy gets released into the blood and then it's not burned because we're not running away from something, right? And so then it's just put back into storage, usually for a lot of women, uh, you know, onto their bellies after a stress response. And so we just keep packing on this fat. And then because we want energy 
again, for the, the response, we go to hyper palatable, high energy, fast glucose foods, sugar foods, you know, whatever it might be. People used to say, are you sweet or savory? It's now sweet or sweet with salt. Like yes, <laughs> sugars, and, sugars and everything, right? So, so yeah, th- these stress responses are just happening from the minute we wake up. We wake up to an alarm clock, which is, you know, fires adrenaline from the minute we're up, whether you've got kids and they're, you know, knocking on the door and then you go to work and you're late for everything. And, and in all of that, you know, you're thinking, oh, I probably should eat well and oh, I probably should go to the gym. And it's just this constant cycle of stress. And so when, if we're talking in the context of adrenaline and cortisol, you know, women are constantly like, why doesn't anything work for me? There's so many diet programs that never acknowledge the stress like the and the impact of the stress. You can do the eating right. You can do smash yourself at the gym and still not move the scales or your body composition in any direction because cortisol and adrenaline are so high, right? Yeah, yeah. But do you find like in your practice and the women that you're working with, they often resist that piece? Like I have a yes. really hard time, like we're every single podcaster right now is talking about stress and mm-hmm. you go to self-care and, and it's like, it goes in one ear and out the other, like very few women are actually going or men as well, but they're, they're not going, Oh, you know what? This lifestyle I'm leading is too stressful. And this is why I'm turning to sugar because I'm needing it for a relief. So mm-hmm. let's take a step back. Let's change things in my life and relax. Like I just find that people have a very hard time doing that. And I don't know if it's because we're so go, go, go all the time in our mm-hmm. society now that it, we're addicted to the go, 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 you know, yeah. that adrenaline rush, the cortisol, that these are addictive hormones and neurotransmitters and yeah. like norepinephrine, adrenaline, all of these things are highly addictive chemicals that are released in the body when we're stressed out and we get very addicted to that. So it's like, once again, one way is this nice open pathway, which is the stress lifestyle and doing these other things. Like you said, the breath work, the meditation is like this tiny little hole that you're trying to get through. And it's like, mm. I can't be bothered. So do you find that? Like, do you find that it's hard to get people to take that seriously? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that comes back to the mind body thing in many ways. Like we live in such a physical reality and, and a physical reality is often about creation and about putting things together and moving forward and progress like in a material way. Whereas I think meditation, hypnosis, all of these things are kind of the opposite. It's about deconstructing. It's about creating space. It's about not putting physical things in place. Whereas uh, and, and plus, if we're talking about women and busy mums, like mum guilt is a real thing, which is, it comes back to the same thing. I should be doing, creating, moving forward for my kids or my husband or the family. And, and, and you might've gotten those beliefs about how to be a mother from your mother, which is a very different generation, you know, probably coming out post-World War II um, and having to sacrifice everything is a very different psychology to the world we're in now. And so, um, and, and this is one thing we were talking about before that I talk about to all the mums that I work with that are, have this ongoing perpetual stress is that, yes, with our kids, there's the odd black sheep and I'm definitely the black sheep of my family, but most children will grow up to embody the world that you created for yourself. And so once they're, once they're adults, they will think about like um, self-care, looking after themselves in the same way that you cared for yourself. So yes, when you're, um, and I hear, hear this from a lot of mums that they feel like they, they want to stop feeling like a fraud because they tell their kids to eat, uh, you know, vegetables, eat all the veggies on your plate, do, do this, do that, but they don't do it. And mm-hmm. so Yes, you might be able to force them by control of being their parent up until they're 18 or 21 or whatever it is. But at some point, they will, they will be an adult for themselves in the way that you have been an adult for yourself. So one way that I try and... Yeah, that's the kind of the way that I try and get mums and women in general to start listening to this stress management stuff seriously is that you're handing these terrible behaviors and these cycles and beliefs over to the kids that you love and we're in a situation where these kids have been eating such terrible food these this generation that we're expecting the kids now to be the first generation that live 
less than their parents. And stress is a major part of this, especially with the addiction to social media, uh, dopamine addiction as well, and feeling like, you know, kids used to compare themselves to 30 kids in a classroom or a few hundred people at school. Now they go online and compare themselves to like 2 billion profiles, right? So it's, it's just, there's just such a cocktail of beliefs about not being good enough about go 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 and so creating space is is definitely challenging and it will and it's the same as the nervous system stuff you're not used to stopping creating space and having things that you're potentially trying to hide or suppress come into that space right and people also don't yet understand that they are not their thoughts and they are not their feelings and that's a really like it takes a little bit to understand the difference like uh because people think if i feel this then i am this um right. and learning how to manage those emotions and separate yourself from things that come up and go away in that space is also a really useful skill to begin not fearing stress management because stress management is about creating space where things do come up and often people are trying to run away from those things so there's no doubt that it's challenging but it's a necessary and worthwhile journey i think can you explain the we're not our thoughts? Absolutely. It, it, yeah, it, it is a really tough one. It took me years to do it. Um, so I guess a good place to start is, have you ever acted on every thought you ever had? Definitely not. <laughs> right? Because we've all thought a crazy thought about, you know, running someone over we didn't like or hurting someone <laughs> and or like, you know, being annoyed by the neighbor's pet. Like we've all thought crazy things or, you know, just punching our partner in the face because they're annoying us this week, whatever. We've all had a thought, but we've, we don't act on them, right? So we are not our thoughts because we don't embody all of our thoughts. There are some that we embody. There are some that we don't. So we have to acknowledge, okay, there's a heap of thoughts that I've thought and thought, oh, wow, like I'm never going to do that, but it's a thought, you know, or even on the other end. It could be like, you know, we see someone on marketing or on social media, they've got abs and a six pack and they're super ripped. And it's like, oh, I've had a thought that I could be that, but I'm never going to do that. Like, so there's all of these thoughts in either direction, positive, healthy, unhealthy, damaging that we don't act on. And then there's this group in the middle that we act on every single day that are our habits, right? So there's these, these cycles that happen. There's these thoughts and that's why that's, they're the ones that make us think we are our thoughts because we're stuck in these. And it's just a small spectrum in the middle because we're all in a situation that we're in with our bodies, with our life as a result of this small collection of habits that have happened for decades. So it's just like 1% every week, basically. And so the, the, the way that I get people to think about it is first, you can acknowledge that you are, haven't acted on every single thought you've ever had. So that's creating space between you, the vessel, the human and thoughts that come into your mind. And there's a couple of ways to envisage it, but one way that I like to think of is kind of as helium balloons. And so if you think about yourself, that's like this, you know, emotionless, thoughtless being, but all of these emotions and thoughts come into your space like balloons and the ones that you hold in your hand, you get to keep, right? And it's like that saying, you know, the good thing about limiting beliefs, beliefs is that you get to keep them. Um, and, but when you separate yourself, they're this, now this balloon that you're holding onto, you can let go of it. And it, just slowly disappears into the clouds. And, and it's, the same, it's the same with things coming into the space is that you can see it coming in and then see it go out as well. And so the vessel is not changed. You, the human, decide how to interact with that thought. And the hardest ones are the ones that we've been doing for years that we think are automatic behaviors because they've become automatic. And, and the, brain, the brain is really smart. It wants to conserve calories. It wants to conserve energy. So when we've done something a few times, like uh, learning to drive. So if you've ever learned to drive a manual car, in the beginning, it's like, Foot oh in the clutch, change oh, yeah. the gear. Oh my God, yeah. there's so many mirrors. <laughs> We're going to look at all the mirrors. And then, you know, a few years later, you can drive 100 kilometers or 100 miles and be like, I, I've forgotten. That's yeah. just like, I don't remember driving. Right. So the brain does the same thing with, with these core habits that are either helpful or not helpful, is it compartmentalizes them into this automated system that doesn't require conscious thought. So they're the hardest ones to tease apart and be like, I'm not my feelings because they're so embedded in this automatic system. So it's not overnight work either. Like this stuff is challenging and requires five minutes here on, you know, one day, five minutes the next, so you can slowly build up. Like I'm really big on the idea of one tweak a week. 
because ah. our nervous system is so foreign to these experiences like fad diet culture, which I know you talk a lot about is that on day one, it's like dive in the deep end, buy 400 kilograms of kale, behave in ways that you've never behaved before and use willpower. And then at the end, you get to be your old self. Um, and then you go back to square one plus some. Yes. Right? And, yeah, yeah. And so that's the nervous system being so unfamiliar with its behavioral choices and the emotions that it's experiencing that it slingshots back into where to that highway, right? It spent too much time on the on the tightrope freaking out. And so we have to do these emotional things and dietary things one tweak a week, one step at a time, making small changes so that most of our nervous system and our personality and our identity says, okay, I'm, I feel familiar and safe and know what's going on, but there's just this one thing we're trying. Like we're just giving this a go. And then slowly that identity expands to include that as part of normal. And then we do another little thing and we slowly expand. So then when we get to week 9, 13, you know, whatever week is the new week after the program you've done, you're instead of being like, oh, I can't wait to be my old self, you're like, I am someone different now. Right. And how is it true the whole like it takes, I think it's 30 days to change a habit? Is there truth mm-hmm. to that? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, it used to be 21 days to change a habit, so three weeks, but latest research in the last few years has sort of shown that it's around 66 to 67 days. Oh, that's Um, so specific. 66 (laughs) or 67? Yeah, well, it's 66, (laughs) but the researchers didn't like the the number resembled the devil's number, so they said 67. (laughs) One more, just so we don't have to, oh my gosh, that's hilarious. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But, But most, yeah, I mean, it's about... It's also about commitment to it's just great, over two months greater than yourself. Yeah. Okay. So, That's good to know though. That because if you so you could kind of set yourself up like I'm gonna work on this. And even if you say I'm gonna make this one change mm-hmm. and I'm gonna apply it for 67 days <laughs> <laughs> and then move to the next one, right? It kind of gives you something to move forward to yeah, to change absolutely. a habit. And I would think that that's the same, like changing a habit is changing your brain pathway. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and to think about it, like going to the gym too, like the neurons that supported the things that you want to change are really thick. Like they're, they're much thicker than the other ideas. And it's a tightrope example. Like in your brain, these pathways are so solid, so well-maintained because there's ideas and thoughts and emotions running back and forth along those neurons every day. Um, whereas these new ideas, sometimes those connections aren't even made. And when they're made, they're really thin. And so it's like going to the gym for 40 years and doing bicep curls on your left arm and nothing right. on your right arm. It's like, this, I'm just going to keep picking up the weights with my left arm because it's been doing it for 40 years and it's easy. Whereas on the other side, we have to, we have to start with a small weight, the smallest weight, and we have to slowly build it up over time. And it's the same with the neurons in our brain. They're ex- they work exactly the same for that type of uh, muscle strength or, or coordination with, with our behaviors. So what would be an example of, so, so let's say there's a busy mom who knows that she should be eating a certain way, but she mm-hmm. can't say no to anything with chocolate in it. And she's fully addicted to it. She can't go a day without it. And she just feels like she's constant. Every time she tries to go without it, she just a matter of days and she's crashing and burning and eating all the chocolate in sight. So how does somebody apply what we're talking about here today about changing these neurons, changing what wires together, fires together in the brain? (laughs) How would somebody start to shift that? I would, and this is, you maybe know Simon Sinek, but start with why. So I think a lot of people they again forward progression this material reality and if we don't take stock of what's going on why it's happening where we're at on day 1 then when we move forward we don't know where we've moved forward from and we're kind of in this strange place and don't know where we've come from so i would and, and this is what i do with the the women in my program week 1 and well week week 1's all called calibration week so we just we just take stock of what's happening in normal life then week 2 we do the same thing but we start asking why. Why is it happening? Um, and this is usually a confronting process. Um, there's no doubt about you know that this work can be challenging. But finding out and not changing it yet. Don't change it yet. We we need to investigate it. Figure out 
the triggers, figure out what's happening, figure out the emotions that you're responding to when you go to the chocolate. Um, and, and the idea being is that as this stuff is, it's like the balloons. Now this stuff is coming into your awareness and you're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't even know that I was doing that. Like, and so much of this kind of food consumption is unconscious as well because we're in this stress response. We want to be zoned out. We want to not be present to experience whatever thing we're avoiding. So I would always start with assessing why what is happening is happening because then you can do something about it. If it's just about willpower, then it's not going to work because willpower is a finite resource and you have to slowly transition to an infinite resource, which is either self-love or self-respect. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So self-awareness. And I think too, going back to what you said with like finding also like why you want to change it and kind of go yes. in a lot of women. I don't think that doing it for ourselves is ever enough. And that's really a very sad thing, but yeah. I'll always say to women, like, you know, is it to think of, you know, are you wanting to do it for your children and then take that a step farther? So if you don't get control of your weight and you keep gaining weight, then you get cancer or you, God forbid you get type two diabetes or any of these terrible chronic illnesses that come with an unhealthy body. It's still not enough to think about that for yourself. I think you have to take that a step farther and say, I don't want my kids to have to see that. I don't want to have to leave my children behind. Mm -hmm. Um, Some women, it has to be superficial. Like I just want to go to a clothing store and that was what it was for me when I gained a bunch of weight, I I Mm -hmm. couldn't stand going into a clothing store and going into those stupid change rooms with horrible fluorescent lighting that showed every dimple on my ass and going Mm -hmm. like, I just want to be able to go in and try on what I want and not be horrified by what I'm seeing in the mirror. Because I was at that time, I wasn't comfortable with the way I looked. And so it, that actually gave me motivation, which was, I just want to be able to go in and try on what I want and feel good about it. And it was awesome when I got to do that. It was great. That's but amazing. I, yeah. And, but you, I think you really have to go down that. What's the worst case scenario if you don't change it and who are you going to change it for? Or why are you going to change it and get, get, get think- yourself some motivation? Yeah, totally. And I think as well that when setting goals for this kind of stuff, like, we often are encouraged to be grandiose. Like I want to be in my bikini like I was 21 again, or, you know, I want to lose a hundred kilos in eight weeks or whatever it is, you know? And, and I think because we're, we're humans, we're dynamic and we go through emotional states all of the time and emotional experiences that it's good to make a tiered gold system, goal system. Mm-hmm. So like, it's good to have the big goal at the top. Like I want to be the healthiest person. I want to live till I'm a hundred years old. You know, I want to be all of the big, amazing things. Um, and then like the next level down is like tangibly, what do you want to do? Um, I want to be healthy for my kids. I want to lose 10 kilos, you know, whatever it is. And then I think it's actually because we all slip into our ego sometimes. Yes. And to pretend that we don't is ignoring a, a part of ourselves that is true and present and a part of our everyday. So I think having an ego goal is yep. not where we should sit all of the time, but when we default to that ego or we're in a stress response or we're in that pettiness because we're human and petty happens with ourselves, with other people, we can still grab onto the petty goal, which is I want to look hot in the mirror, like, or, you know, this really superficial thing. So I think this tiered goal system for the different emotional states that we all go through throughout the day or through the throughout the week you know i mean you run a business and i get up some days and i'm like i want to change the world like and that and then some days i get up and i'm like oh you know, i don't want to change the world <laughs> yeah like how could i possibly change the world like you know and so having these goals on different sort of states of mind like I, I find works really well because we we all go through all of those goals and all of them are okay. It's okay to have a body image goal. Like who doesn't want to look great? Of course, yeah. we're humans. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and who doesn't want their kids to be healthy? And so, yeah, I think whenever you're on any of these levels, having something to attach to in that moment uh, that is still moving towards where you want to end up is a good idea. Yeah, almost like having some big goal and then bite-sized goals that you can yeah. easily tick off Cause yep. that I think gives the person momentum to keep going as well. So if it's somebody that's addicted to the sugar, like maybe your first step is to have it, you know, just 
one serving every day and just say, I'm going to just have myself a chocolate bar every single day, but I'm going to eat really well breakfast, lunch, dinner. And sometimes that can be enough for somebody to be like, Hey, I think I could do that. And it's not not restricting myself. And because we all know as soon as we start to restrict ourselves and beat ourselves up, it's a matter of time before we go back to eating what we were trying not to eat. So something like that, you know, I think is a tangible bite-sized goal is just Mm -hmm. instead of trying to completely get rid of it, you just start small and work your way towards that bigger goal. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Yeah. And, and, you know, that can be a bit disheartening too because when you break it down into such small steps, people are like, oh, I'm going to be doing this for 40 years. What's the point Um, sort of thing? So I think a a phase of acceptance is like, okay, how long did it take me to get into this situation? And then look, think of it like a mountain. It's like right now I'm on top of the mountain. It took me 10 years to walk up the mountain. And I'm looking for a solution that gets down the other side of the mountain in eight weeks or 12 weeks. It's probably not going to happen. So if it's a 10-year problem, we want to slowly and progressively walk down that mountain. It's not necessarily going to be a 10-year solution, but we've got to allow ourselves a similar window of time to get back to healthy rather than you know do these extreme things where we destroy our metabolism, ruin our hormones, you know. So I think the one tweak a week or this tiny, tiny habit change over time, it doesn't feel like it makes much of a difference. But as those compound, you'll just kind of realize that, oh, lots of stuff's changed. Like that happens all the time with the people that I work with. They're like, I've lost weight and we didn't even talk about weight once. Yeah. Like <laughs> You know, because we focus on just these nailing these little things. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's not what we're selling ain't sexy. It's not this, <laughs> it's like, true. like we live in this like total quick fix, you know, tell me, which, like I said, at the very beginning, tell me the pill, tell me the diet, tell me the exercise mm-hmm. program. I don't want to have to do these, this work. I don't want it because it's work. And so we're so like, so easily go down this easy pathway of instant gratification if we can get it. And it doesn't work. Like 95% of diets fail. And this is one of the biggest reasons why, because it is too quick, too much, too fast. Nobody can upkeep what they're asking you to do. No one's going to sit and live on broccoli and freaking bake chicken for the rest of their life <laughs> while they work out 10 hours a week. Like yep. it just, <laughs> it just won't happen. Totally. Oh, it's, it's very frustrating. And I think that everyone listening, I really want you to get that through your head, like mm. really embrace what we're saying here, which is there is no quick fix. Yeah. So, well, and we were talking about this beforehand about, um, dopamine addiction was like yes. when, when we're finding these solutions and people finding you and I as well, we're finding them in social media. So we're in a world that is about the instant gratification. Literally the goal of these apps is to give you a, a tiny dopamine hit at least every three seconds. And then inside these apps, we're saying, hey, it's really hard work. <laughs> and so cognitively, it's like, 
I'm in this world of social media and instant gratification and Netflix at the end of my fingers and, all, you know, and porn is, is, is a really massive thing for men and women for yes. instant gratification and dopamine addiction. We're in this world and then we've got us over here being like, hey, this is going to be tough and we're going to be honest with you and it's going to take a while and it's like, well, of course people want the quick fix. I totally get it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I, I listened to your podcast on hormones, happy hormones, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about them in this podcast today, but it was even for me who is very self-aware and I've been mm-hmm. working on being self-aware and recognizing my thoughts and changing my thoughts and changing my feelings and know that I'm not mm-hmm. th- that my thoughts I've been working yep. on that for years, but <laughs> even me, I'm listening to that podcast and I'm like, Oh, God damn it, Maddie. I'm so addicted to my, my dopamine hit from my phone. <laughs> it's terrible. And I hate it. I hate that I am. Like I told my husband the other day, like I'm just standing there talking to him in the kitchen and my Mm -hmm. phone is on the Island. And I'm just like grabbing it as I'm talking to him and I'm grabbing it and I'm looking at it and I'm putting it down. And I'm, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I don't need to be looking at my phone. What am I looking at it for? Like who messaged me? What happened? You know, it's so dumb, but you talk about these happy hormones. So let's dive Mm -hmm. into that. What's happening? Like you said, there's every three seconds you're getting a dopamine hit. So explain dopamine. Like, why do we care about this? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Should so, we care? Yeah, well, it's, and it's really relevant to the um, the habits and the yes. routines and stuff that people are in that we've been talking about. So, dopamine on a reptilian brain level, you know, forever has been the reward hormone basically. So the reason we go and hunt or we, we go and eat or we have sex to procreate is that we get this hormonal response, which is dopamine, which is reward. So we've done, had an achievement or we've had a win. Um, and the idea is that it makes us feel good. And if dopamine, we, we weren't wired on a reward system, then nobody would hunt for food. Nobody would go shopping. Nobody would have sex. The humans would just not exist anymore. So the idea is on a fundamental level, the dopamine drives that cycle. And then when, when we haven't had it for a while, we're like, oh, you know, I, I want another dopamine hit. I need to eat or, you know, I need to um, have sex or do all the things. But in, in a modern world, um, whether it be food corporations that have created bliss point foods that give us these dopamine hips. And that's been happening for a very long time. But now we're in these, this social media world where they spend millions of dollars on research about how to hack these dopamine pathways in your brain. Um, and, and obviously you can only get so much, but in, in like three seconds, but the idea is that it's, it's micro dosing. So all day you're on this loop and it, because it's a, it's a fundamental reptilian evolutionary thing. It's so hardwired into the deepest part of our brain that we can't just, you know, use our conscious mind to be like, ah, I don't need dopamine today because it's fundamentally hardwired into our survival. So when it comes to our habits, the reason we cycle around our habits is this same, the same reward system. And you can break the anatomy of those habits down into a trigger or a cue, then the routine in the middle, and then the reward, which is usually an emotional response. And a part of that emotional response is a dopamine hit. And so when we're in this world of yeah, everything at our fingertips, this, this reward system gets faster and faster because it feels good. So why wouldn't we go that way, right? Yes. Um, and it's the same with sugar. It feels good. And so, and because we don't have a mechanism to slow this down, the reason we don't have a mechanism to slow this down is because technology moved so fast that human evolution isn't hasn't been able to keep up. So in order to get a dopamine hit, it used to mean you had to go and physically do a giant activity, whether it be going, you know, for days in the bush to find food, for the, you know, the family, for the tribe. And so they, they were really labor intensive tasks. However, the, the bigger the time that the dopamine builds up, the greater the dopamine reward, right? Mm. So even though it took longer, the satisfaction and anybody that's achieved anything major in their lives understands it's like, wow, you know, whether it be sports, whether it be even a weight loss journey, whether it be something that you've put lots of effort into over time and then got it. And it's like, it's so overwhelming with pride and joy. And a big part of that is dopamine. And so, but the smaller the smaller the experience, the less barrier to entry, the less effort, the smaller the dopamine hit, which is why when you go around social media first thing in the morning, you're unfulfilled 10 minutes later because you got just you got just a little bit. You just got a little bit. And it was like the brain's like, hang on, 
we're so evolutionarily, we're so used to these big hits that make us feel amazing. And so we're like, we go back for more, we go back for more. And then we're on this cycle all day. And, and then we do the same thing with food. We chase, you know, um, I read a study recently for Americans. It was like the average American eats six to 11 times a day. Um, and the part of that is the dopamine experience. It's the lack of satiation, the lack of protein in the food. It's a bunch of things, but a portion of that is constantly chasing this good feeling, whether it be in our mouth, in our belly, whether it be Netflix, like the stuff we were talking about. There's all of these inputs of dopamine constantly. Um, and every time your phone pings, when you open up the app and it's like there's numbers on all the apps of all the things that you've got to look at, it's like, oh, I'm popular. This is, this is for me. Um, so yeah, dopamine has been hacked, solidly hacked by the food industry first and then by the technology industry second. Um, and so in order for us to begin winding that back, we have to create space. And again, this is the same thing as the one tweak a week. Don't just throw your phone in the bin for a week like because you will withdraw. Same thing. Your nervous system's used to all of these hormones running around. So we need to start by putting your phone out, out of the bedroom. And then the next next time, next week or the next month, don't turn it on until nine o'clock. And then the next month, don't turn it on until 10 o'clock. And the same thing at night, instead of taking it to bed and connecting bed with like and sleep with, you know, brain activity and functioning and socializing and all the things. <laughs> Quick yeah, hit of totally. dopamine before I go to bed. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's so normal. It's so normal because we're addicted to the dopamine. Um, but it comes back as well to what we were talking about with creating space. We've, we've filled our world with so much activity, keep up with social media, keep up with the COVID story, keep up with all the things that when people put their phone out of their room before they're tired, they're like, again, they're in this space where they're just left with their thoughts yes. and that's confronting. <laughs> so that's why five minutes, we're going to start five minutes, turn it off five minutes before bed, right? And then turn it off 20 minutes and then half an hour and then, and then progress. And, and there'll be, a, there's a point where functionally, you know, you can't do without your phone. And, you know, one, one tactic is to get the TV out of the room you know, connect with the other human that's in your bed that you've both sit there and scroll, you know. It's terrible. So, yeah, totally. So, so yeah, I could, I could bang on about dopamine and how, how it's ruined society because of Mark Zuckerberg basically. But, um, yes, exactly. <laughs> but, but it's important to acknowledge that when it comes to food and sugar and bliss points, that dopamine is a part of that both mm -hmm. with our diets and nutrition, but also with emotions and, and our survival in, in the real world. Even though like cortisol, we're not running away from a lion, Facebook's not going to give us the same experience as actually have, having had sex or actually having, you know, hunted a wildebeest, you know, it's not yeah. quite the same. <laughs> and isn't it true that they, like you need more to get the, the hit? Like, yeah. you know, like with drugs and alcohol and cocaine and things like that, it's like, you need more to get that feeling. Yeah, so absolutely. Like, like you need more and more and more stimulation from social media in order to get the same payoff that you used to get. Yeah, exactly right. And, that, and that's why we catch ourselves and probably everyone listening and maybe you too, Karen, like you, do you catch yourself going around the apps and you're like, I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Like, yes, all the time. Yeah. It's terrible. I seriously need, like, and this is what happens to me. I start without even realizing it. Like start going down that pathway of more and more addiction to it. And, and then I'll suddenly go, oh my gosh, I am so addicted to my phone right now or so addicted to, mm -hmm. you know, working even like, cause working is also dopamine hit for me. Cause I'm, I get, I, it excites me and it, it's stressful. So I'm addicted to that, uh, the adrenaline, whatever it is. Right. But yeah, totally. So I have to oftentimes like it's a struggle for me to like I I got went down that pathway recently and so I listened to your podcast last week and I was like yeah I got to make some changes here I'm, I've gone <laughs> too far down that path and so I took the entire weekend off my computer off my phone like I checked nice. it for stupid little things but pretty much I kept it to the side I read a book Whoa. <laughs> Which is really like, because when I get down that addiction pathway, 
it's not stimulate like it doesn't stimulate me enough to read a book. Mm-hmm. It's not quick enough, and I can't yep, even exactly like, annoys me, irritates me almost just to settle down and read a book. I'm like, no, no, I'd rather yeah. just go and scroll and research and learn and see mm-hmm. what's on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> quick, quick, totally. Quick. How did you feel after the weekend? Awesome. It was fantastic. And I'm like, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this every weekend because I read a book. I felt good. I connected with my kids. It was awesome. It was like amazing. Do this more. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's what I challenge the listeners to do as well. The first, whenever I suggest putting the phone down or turning it off or having a time where the TV goes off, everyone's like, oh, well, I couldn't do that because I've got to go bang, 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 bang. And they list all of these things. And so I would challenge people to be like, that list that you just justified your behavior with really spend a few minutes looking at that list and be like, do I really need to do that? Like, do, do I really, like, how did we survive 50 years ago? And I mean, we could go another layer deeper with these children under 10, under five that have mobile phones now. Like, what kind of psychology are you setting up for your children? You're probably setting up extremely, extremely dependent humans that cannot survive on their own because they're so connected. They have no problem-solving skills because they can Google it instantly. And I think that's a significant problem for the future for an entire generation to not have these, to be able to develop independence, to be able to problem-solve, figure things out and experience life in their own way. It's always these external inputs. So we could go that another layer deeper, you know, back to that layers of motivation for the kids and for you, right? Yeah. And, but yeah, it's so easy to hand the kid, the tablet, the phone, it's just like a babysitter, right? It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And we are ruining their lives by doing, by allowing this, like, yeah. I don't have an Xbox. My kids have tablets. Um, mm-hmm. I think the worst thing my child does, my eight-year-old is he does watch some stupid YouTube videos. That's it. He doesn't do anything. He plays the odd kid game on there on what, what yeah, you can yeah. get on an app, you know, that he can figure it out. <laughs> and he gets, you know, like he probably still spends too much time on it, probably two hours a day. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't watch TV. He watches his tablet. So that's included in that, right? He'll watch Netflix on there. Yep. But we read every night before bed and Amazing. I try to still get that going. I'm like, I have to make sure that he continues to read or else it's just not going to happen because it's so much easier to stare at a screen. Oh, totally. And and don't get me wrong. Like, I obviously don't have kids, not a mother, but also like there's consequences to our decisions. And for hundreds of years, thousands of years, we were able to raise humans that got us to this point without all of these devices. And and we're so aware of capitalism and marketing now that being able to tease ourselves away from that and realize, oh, I'm being told to think this way. I'm being programmed to think I need these things, you know, is a real thing. It's not that we shouldn't engage with them. They're really useful tools, but it's about try, learning how to manage that, that, that arrangement that you've got between you and technology or you and any dopamine source. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it really can, like you said, help with this eating part of things, right? Because oh, definitely. whether it's social media or whether it's sugar, you're still getting this dopamine hit. And so mm-hmm. you have to say, okay, what, where could I get of something that feels good that isn't so destructive to my health? Because I do think it's important to replace it. And you do talk about in that podcast episode, like, what can you do? to increase these other happy hormones like serotonin. And maybe you could give us a few of those tips. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, I mean, oxytocin is a big one at the minute and particularly here in Australia where we're all really locked down. So oxytocin happens when basically we interact with humans um, and are able to touch and hug and kiss and shake hands. And so it's, it's, we're in a strange time where we're all separated so much that this oxytocin hormone that's, essentially laying dormant within us, um, it really needs to be exercised. And it's for many people, it's contributing to states of depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and, and all sorts of things. So I think oxytocin is another really good feel-good hormone that we can get by simply hugging someone you know, and making sure that our cheeks touch, skin-to-skin contact um, and connecting. And I know that the message in the world is right now that touching another human is basically the worst thing that you can, you can do. I strongly disagree and think we should all hug everybody that we love. Um, and so I think that's Me really too. important. 
And the same with serotonin. Like, so, and and when we when we talk about the food conversation, because all of this psychology inevitably must be paired with good nutrition, right? And so, the likes of serotonin is mostly produced in our gut. Same with dopamine. So, ensuring that we have good nutrition alongside the behaviors that facilitate these happy hormones is is important as well. Because if the gut's not in good condition, then we're going to experience these hormones in ways that aren't necessarily intended or far diluted. So. But behaviors, really good things to do are working out. Physical activity, particularly in the sun, vitamin D is a precursor to creating a lot of these neurotransmitters and uh, happy hormones. So making sure that your skin gets bare naked sun, not through windows because windows take out the UVB rays and that's the ones that trigger the uh, vitamin D production with the cholesterol. So physical activity is, it's been researched a lot actually and it's the number one antidepressant physical activity. So yeah, doing exercise. And if you want to put a dopamine thing into that, so the physical exercise will produce serotonin, but if you want to put a dopamine hack in there as well, you simply have a goal. Um, So it's back to that achievement, right? So it's like, I'm going to do 10 reps of this, or I'm going to run five kilometers. So the serotonin happens from the physical activity. The dopamine happens from the sense of achievement because you managed to tick off things on that list. So exercise, physical activity, healthy food, uh, and human interaction, laughter, connection, love, romance, all of those things are so important at this, especially at this time. Yeah. I think too, like, well, this is kind of an odd one, but my sister pointed this out to me where she was getting into all of this stuff. And she was like, I realize, you know, even when I'm watching a scary show or a show with a ton of action in it, like every mm-hmm. show has to have so much action and violence in it nowadays. Yeah. Right. Because we're so dull in our yep. dopamine. <laughs> totally. <laughs> we have to like, there's got to be a ton of sex and a ton of violence now in, in every single show. And she's like, you imagine what that's doing to the inside of my body. Like with those, with those fight or flight hormones, the cortisol, the dopamine, totally. adrenaline, like you're setting yourself off like, like fireworks on the inside. And that's yeah. not healthy to do that all the time. It's not like to, you need to be watching the comedies, the feel good shows sometimes, you know, that for sure. give you and the it sets up our expectation for reality. <laughs> Yeah. Like it's we like we consume. I, I walked to the supermarket yesterday, and there was a woman watering her garden with an iPad, and I was like, "No, yeah, like we're consuming content." every minute of every day and we're not thinking for ourselves. So it builds in this expectation of how the humans in our life should behave, um, you know, and how reality should be. So if we get addicted to this dopamine cycle in a sort of um, a destructive way of all this violence and sex and and Netflix and porn and all of these different things, then we create, when, when we've got space in our own life, we end up manufacturing those scenarios because we're so wired for this drama or this chaos. Um, and that can be also connected to, you know, not having a great childhood as well and growing up in a state where love meant chaos or danger or anything like that. So there's lots of layers to it. But I think it, watering the garden, like that's a that's a moment to take some space. It really is. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. Oh, my gosh. That's like from day one. And I live out of the city. I live about 30 minutes out of the main city. So it's a bit of a drive for my kids, Mm -hmm. right? When we go to town and right from the get-go though, I was always, since they were little, said no devices in the vehicle. And it shocks me how many people drive around and they have like in all the minivans and stuff, they have the drop-down TV screen for their little Mm -hmm. kids. And they have to, these kids can't go 10 minutes in a car without watching something on their phone or watching a tablet or, and I'm like, no, you don't want to start that. Like, I'm not judging the people that are doing it because it's Mm -hmm. such a normal part of society. Like they probably didn't even think twice about it comes totally. with the car. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, right. Cool. But and you shouldn't. <laughs> and, and like, even as adults, like, you know, being an adult is kind of boring because we lack that child part of ourselves. And so what, what do we want for our kids? We want them to be as kids as long as possible. So robbing them of their imagination or space to be creative by pumping them full of somebody else's ideas 
is really dumbing down the population, I would argue. And and great ideas don't come from consuming other people's creation. It, it comes from creating space and being able to evolve your thought patterns and your ideas with space. Um, and so, you know, again, it's not a judgment because maybe this podcast is the first time anyone's thought about things this way. Uh, but I think even as adults, you know, creating space and getting back into imagination and that childlike part of ourselves would be so beneficial to our happy hormones, to our happiness, to our relationship, to the state of our family. Like, because we're not always in this serious, got to make money, got to be here by this time. And all of that stress response that we talked about earlier. Yeah, I I completely agree. I, I know that my best things, my best thoughts come to me when I'm unplugged walking in nature, you know, in the mornings, I, I don't put my phone on for a couple of hours and I sit and I read or I write or, and that's always when my brain's the most creative, when all of my great business ideas and life epiphanies, that's when they come to me. Not when I'm sitting staring at Facebook, scrolling the newsfeed. (laughs) Well, this is why people have such good epiphanies in the shower. Ah, yes, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> They're unplugged. They're with themselves. <laughs> yeah. And that's so sad that that's the, when it's the only time that it seems to be happening for some people. Totally. And I mean, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of mums out there that can't even go to the toilet by themselves these days. <laughs> true. That's very true. All right. So let's wrap it up and just, unfortunately, everyone, this isn't an easy, we can't give you an easy answer to the question of, why can't I do what I, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing when I know better? It's not easy, but start small. Take, you know, mm-hmm. like, like Manny said, start with this kind of tiered goals where you mm-hmm. small ones to large ones. What is it? A task? What was it? A week? One tweak a week. One tweak a week. One small change each week. Yes. Like little things like this, recognizing your thoughts. I think that was probably the biggest, most profound thing that I've ever learned to do, which was separating myself from my thoughts and going, I can choose how I can think about this situation. I can go down the pathway of negativity and think, oh, poor me, this is so sad. Mm -hmm. This is so awful. How can this happen? Or I can say, hey, maybe it happened for this reason, which is super exciting. And this is really good. Maybe it's kind of crappy right now, but it's going to get better. Or, you know, like you have control over those things. So start being aware of the thoughts that are crossing in that brain of yours. I love which that. ones Absolutely. are the habits, which ones are the ones that you, you know, can maybe start to change mm-hmm. in 67 days. <laughs> <laughs> Be aware of your dopamine and mm-hmm. how much are you feeding your dopamine addiction? Because we all have dopamine addictions right now, I think. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so being aware of them, doing little tiny things that you can you know, to move yourself out of that dopamine addiction, which is putting the phone away. Don't sit on it all week on the weekend. Mm-hmm. I love you. you. I think you said you put it in your cupboard, your phone, your kitchen mm. cupboard. Yeah. I turn it off before bed and I put it in the kitchen cupboard high enough that I need to get the ladder in the morning. So these are like little barriers to entry. And then I don't turn it on until after my workout about midday, but it took, it took time though. It took yeah, one step at a time. I had to buy an alarm clock. That's a big step for people. I was just going to say, well, did clock. you buy an alarm clock? Because I use my phone as my alarm clock. I do turn yeah, it off, but. That's usually step one for people, buy an alarm clock. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to buy an alarm clock. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of smart alarm clocks these days as well that have all sorts of different options for how to wake up and using light and using meditation sounds and 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 there's also the crazy ones as well that scream at you but um oh. there's lots of options <laughs> i want the one that's the sad light the sad light that yeah that's smoke, what I've got. that mimics the sunrise yeah i have that one yeah i'm going to get that okay and that's great. birds tweeting as the music oh, really? comes on <laughs> yep it's so nice cuz you just wake up and you're like oh Oh, I feel like day. Snow White, the birds around me. <laughs> That's what I just had imagined in my head. <laughs> awesome. So did I forget anything? Is there any last words, any great advice that you want to give people? Um, just it, of all of this information and any information you hear, just one tweak a week, pick one small thing, focus on that, incorporate it, make it normal. 
pick a new thing. It's going to take time, but if you take that strategy, you will evolve and transform into a different version of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think even reading about it, like if this is interesting and you think, yeah, I Mm. want to try this, there's different books out there that talk about changing your brain and how to, you know, Mm -hmm. change your neural pathways and what you're, you know, all of that stuff. There's so much information on that right now. Yeah. I read a great one. The one that introduced me to it was called The Buddha's Brain. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-hmm. Yep. It was great. But yes, there's many. There's, I mean, that's just one of them, but there's a lot and there's a lot of podcasts that talk about it as well. So I think learning more about it, educating yourself is always a great step as well. And you have a couple different, you've got a program, a Facebook group, and I want you to tell everybody about it because they sound awesome. Yeah. So the Facebook group's called the Busy Mums Collective. Um, So come and join us over there. Um, And basically, yeah, it's just all about reclaiming your health, your wellness, your energy levels and your self-confidence. So we talk about nutrition, we talk about intermittent fasting, we talk about gut health, psychology, habits, a lot of the stuff we've talked about here today. Um, And uh, a lot of people also check out my podcast, which you've been on. Karen's episode's the best, obviously. Of course. Um, (laughs) So that's called How to Not Get Sick and Die. So check that that out. Um, (laughs) And the program, yeah, so the Ultimate Energy Upgrade. Yeah, so we basically take women through this experience of um, kind of what we talked about today. First, figuring out why what is happening is happening working on the mindset, figuring out what the how to move forward from a psychological standpoint. And once we understand ourselves enough to know what's going on, then we move into changing the nutrition, changing the meal timing, changing the meal contents based on the goals that you know that person wants. So, um, and something different works for everybody. It's really important to acknowledge that. I'm, I'm not one of those like keto is the only way type type people. Everyone's yeah. different. Everyone's got a different background, different hormones. So, the idea is though that we obviously progress through that and get to weight loss and body confidence and, and a place that you're happy with yourself. Yeah, I love that. I should I should integrate you into my program. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, there we go. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'm going to have you on again because I know that you and I always have lots to talk about. And definitely we do a good job talking together. So (laughs) I will definitely have you on again. But thank you so much for coming on the show, Maddie. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.